anymore these last two or three years, there have been two separate movies come out about Mr. Rogers' life. Uh, and, and I think that it's very timely. In fact, uh, when we're living in a world filled with hate and violence and, and anger, I, I, I always wonder what Mr. Rogers would say uh, about COVID and about uh, masks and things like that and how, what, what kind of advice he would give to parents about uh, uh, calming their children's fears and things like that. Now, I saw both movies. I don't know if you saw the movies. I, I saw the documentary, and then I saw the one with Tom Hanks. And, and I was very proud of myself because I only cried once for like an hour and a half uh, on both of those. But it was only one time. I mean, just, I, I only cried once. Anyways, I was thinking of Mr. Rogers because of today's story. It's when Jesus was telling a, a story about a neighbor. Uh, it goes like this. Before he told the story, a man shows up, and this man is an expert in the law of Moses. And he said, uh, teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you're the expert in the law. You tell me how you read it. What does it say? And the man says, well, it says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, all right, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man wanted to find a loophole to justify himself, and so he said, but when you say, love your neighbor, who is my neighbor? And at that point, Jesus told him this story. Probably didn't have a flannel graph. That's too bad. Uh, Jesus was a much better teacher than I am, but I love the flannel graph. Jesus said, one day, A man was traveling on a road from Jerusalem down to Jericho, a road that was very dangerous, very famous, infamous actually, for the robbers that would lie in wait and ambush and attack people. In fact, it was called the Road of Blood. Anyway, this man was on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho when indeed he was ambushed and attacked by a group of men who beat him robbed him, stripped him of all of his clothes, and left him to die on the road, half dead. Well, Jesus said along the road where the man was laying there, along the road came a priest. And the priest, when he saw the man lying on the road, he actually crossed by the other side and passed by the man without helping. Likewise, Jesus said, a Levite, who would have been a a worker in the temple, he passed by that same way, saw the man in need, lying there, half dead, and he too passed by without helping. But then Jesus said, then a Samaritan was passing by, and when he saw the man, he stopped, got off his donkey, saw to the man's wounds, bandaged him up, put medicine on him, put the man on his own donkey, and led him to an inn. And while he was there at the inn, oh, sorry, (laughs) there it is, he's bandaging his wounds there. Then he took him to the inn, and while he was there at the inn, he gave the innkeeper some money, And said, take care of this man, and if 
he incurs any more expenses, when I come back, I will pay those expenses for him. That is the story that you know of as the Good Samaritan. I think it also could be the story of the poo-poo head priest or the really lousy light Levite. Uh, we always kind of talk about the good. Uh, we don't talk about the, the guys that should have known better, the guys who should have done something but did not do that. Well, the, this whole scenario was, was given by Jesus when a man asked him about who his neighbor was. Now, this whole thing was a test uh, of Jesus because the man who asked this question uh, about what do I do to inherit eternal life? This man was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. Any lawyers in here today? Okay, good. I can tell you, when, uh, even this last week, somebody said, hey, Trey, do we have any attorneys in our church? And I said, of course not. We're a Christian church. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, that's, I tease uh, about that. Uh, we, we have in our society kind of an idea of what lawyers are, and, and I know that Jesus loves lawyers and lawyers love Jesus so we're just we're just poking fun this guy knew the law he knew the law of Moses inside and out he would have been known as a scribe Um, and these guys would basically sit around seven hours of the day seven hours of the day discussing the law the Torah the Old Testament the the first five books of of the Bible And, and they were very closely related to priests and Levites, and some of the scribes would have been priests or Levites as well. And a Levite was, like I said, a worker in the temple. So here's an expert in the law asking Jesus about the law. That should throw up some yellow flags to say this is a trap. This is a loaded question. So Jesus turns it back on him because he knows what's going on. He knows what's in this guy's heart, and so he says, well, what Tell, tell, tell me, Mr. Expert, in the law, how do you read the law to, to, to read? How, how, how do you interpret it? Now, what the man answered was pretty fascinating to me because he actually uses the exact same words that Jesus uses. I, I believe that this guy has been following Jesus and has heard his teaching because one day Jesus was asked by another expert in the law, and who knows, it could have been the same guy. We don't know. But he was asked by an expert in the law, what is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, that's the greatest commandment. He says, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's fascinating to me that this guy, when Jesus says, how do you interpret the law? The guy says exactly what Jesus has said. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, great, you know your stuff. But let me ask you this, is knowing your stuff good enough? Is that really what our faith is about, is just knowing the right stuff? Now, knowing the right stuff is good, so that you don't step into heresy and follow false teaching. If you don't know your stuff, you should know your stuff. But it's not enough to just know the right stuff. We're called to put it into action as well. If you ever are around during our Awana program, when we have had that children's program, when we're teaching the Bible to to kids from kindergarten all the way up through fifth grade, kids hate it when I listen to their verses because I don't just want them to to tell me the verse because for them it's just a series of of words that they've memorized. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, yeah, okay, good, good. I'll say, can you say it again? And they go, oh. And so they try to say it again. And then I say, now, do you know what that means? And they go, no, we just want you to sign off on our books, please. We don't want you to ask us what it means. I need to know if you know what this means. Go back and let's figure this out before I sign you off. Because to know it is one thing. To put it into practice, to know how to put it into practice is a whole other thing. I don't want to raise up a generation of children who will become like the, the old man who every week would leave church talking to the preacher saying, Preacher, that was a great sermon. Every point that you had applies to somebody that I know. Somebody else. <laughs> a British author and philosopher Francis Bacon once said, it is not what men eat, but what they digest that makes them strong. Not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. Not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned. And not what we preach, but what we practice that makes us Christians. So Jesus said, great, you know your stuff, sir. Now do it. And he has no problem loving God. And really has no problem loving his neighbor, except for he throws in that yabbit. And now, moms, you probably know what the yabbit is. When you've told your kids, I don't want you to do this, yabbit, da 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 da. Yabbit. My mom hated the yabbit. Yabbit. This guy is saying, yeah, but uh, who is really my neighbor, Mr. Rogers? Can you please clarify? And so Jesus uses the story of the Good Samaritan to clarify what he means by putting your faith into practice. You see, our faith must be seen. It must be demonstrated in order for it to be the faith that pleases God. And so he uses this story to illustrate one of the things, uh, one of the many things that is involved in being a disciple, but one thing that really, I think, applies to our lives, especially today, and that is the, the idea of compassion. Compassion. In verse 33, it uses the word pity. In verse 37, it uses the word mercy. I I think more than anything else in our world today, we need to understand what compassion is, especially as believers and followers of Christ. So I want you to see four things that we can see from this story about righteous living through the idea of compassion. Number one, I want you to see that compassion sees. Compassion sees. Let's go to the, the book of Luke. That's the third of the Gospels in the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke. If you're actually in these Bibles, in your pews, it's on page 773, if you want to look there. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be starting in verse 25. That, that's where the story is found. Uh, actually, I want you to go to verse 30, though, because this is after Jesus talks with the expert in the law. And now he's getting into the story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. The first thing I want you guys to understand about compassion is that compassion sees. And it sees something very specific. Compassion needs to see past the worth of an individual to the need of the individual. Ultimately, it doesn't matter who this guy is. 
though Jesus will eventually tell us it's a Jew, and, and that's going to be important, and we're going to get to that shortly. But at this point, it doesn't matter. Jesus says it's a certain man. It doesn't matter his class or, or his social standing. It doesn't matter the amount in his bank account or, or what kind of clothes he's wearing. It doesn't matter his hygiene or his credit score or the color of his skin or even his religious beliefs. Jesus called him a man, a certain man. He's just a guy. See, the point is, is, is it, the point is not that the Samaritan helped the man because the man deserved it. I hate that term, deserve. I do. I mean, when you watch commercials and they say, here's this big ram truck and you deserve this. And I'm thinking, in fact, sometimes I say out loud, you don't know me. You don't know what I deserve or not deserve. Well, why do I deserve that? Just because I live in America, I deserve that? You, you don't know. You, you don't know what my income is. You, you don't know if I can afford that. All you want me to do is to have a discontent in my life, and so I'll go out and buy what you want me to buy. See, the, 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 the Samaritan does not help the man because the man deserves it. He helped him because the man needed it. Period. That was it. That was the requirement. To those who should have known better, the, the, the priest and the Levite, they, didn't, they could not see past the worth of this man. And for them, the man wasn't worth it. We, we don't know why they didn't stop. Maybe they thought those robbers were actually still hiding in the rocks. And if they stopped, that those robbers would now then attack them and steal from them and beat them up and leave them for dead as well. That's not worth it. That's not worth it at all. Or uh, some people say, well, maybe they were going to Jerusalem for their priestly duties, for their Levitical duties. And if they touched this man who was unclean, maybe dead, then they wouldn't be able to perform their, their priestly duties. And I'd say, well, that's duty because it says that they were coming down the road, which meant that they were coming down from Jerusalem, which meant that if they were doing their duty, they'd already done it. They had preached four times, and now they were on their way home, and it was tiring, and they wanted just to get home to turn on the game and not be bothered by somebody on the road that may have needed their help. See, they didn't see the need. Compassion sees past the worth of the person or what he deserves. That person doesn't deserve my pity. That person got themselves into that, their own mess. That person is, is causing problems in our society. They don't deserve this. Compassion sees beyond what is deserved to what is needed. Number two, compassion feels. Compassion feels. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. That's the word, compassion. He took pity on him. Now, because we know the story so well, we actually miss the impact of Jesus' words. What he was saying would have been shocking to those who heard this for the very first time. Because to them, a Samaritan had no, had, had no ability to feel any kind of human emotion like love or compassion. The closest thing that I could tell you of how a Jew would have felt towards a Samaritan would be how a Nazi would feel towards a Jewish person in the mid-1900s. 
not human, heretical, scum of the earth, incapable of any kind of human compassion at all. The Jews hated Samaritans primarily because the Samaritans represented what the Jews feared would happen to themselves if they weren't careful. You see, the Samaritans represented turning away from God's holy law and watering down the worship of Jehovah God, the one true God. A little bit of history for those of you who may not know. Um, Back in the days of the kings of Israel, there was Saul and then David and then Solomon. And after Solomon died, there was a civil war. And the nation of Israel was broken up into two nations, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom in the north, and Judah, the southern kingdom in the south. If you read through the Old Testament in the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll see the succession of those kings up in the north and in the south. And you'll see that some kings were good and some kings were bad. And as the kings were good, the nation kind of followed after God. And as the kings were bad, the nation turned their back on God. And for that reason, God, in two separate actions, brought discipline to his people through a foreign power. First was Israel. Israel up in the north was invaded by the Assyrians and scattered. They they had to abandon their capital city of Samaria. And they then began to intermingle with a bunch of other different people around them. Something that God had said, do not do. About 150 years later, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came into Jerusalem into Judah, the southern kingdom, and took the Jews captive as well. And then God brought those people back to Jerusalem 70 years later. Uh, Nothing like that happened to Israel. They never came back into a power, the northern kingdom, ever again. But they did come back. Their descendants had come back, and they had intermarried with the pagan people. Well, that was the genius about the Assyrians' plan of conquest. Because if they could take you away from your heritage... And if they could intermingle your blood, then subsequent generations would not just be Israelite. They would be Israelite and Assyrian. So you would cut down on the revolts later on in subsequent generations because you couldn't fight against the Assyrians because you were part Assyrian. That is pretty brilliant. Well, that's exactly, like I said, what the Israelites did. They intermarried, which God had expressly forbidden. Now, by the way, that was not because of racism. God did not say, I don't want the the races to mix. For crying out loud, we've all come from Adam and Eve, right? I mean, so we're all connected anyway. It had nothing to do with race. Don't let anybody tell you that God was racist in that command. God was saying, I don't want you to mix with the pagan nations because they, they do not worship me. They worship these false gods and they have these horrible pagan practices. And if you ally yourself close enough to people like that, if you intermarry, if you yoke yourself with unbelievers, eventually your devotion for Jehovah God will wither away, be watered down as you accept these pagan practices and Canaanite deities into your life. And that's exactly what happened. So the Jews would have looked at Samaritans as half-breeds, not just racially, but half-breeds religiously. They should have known better, but they had fallen away. And because of that, they were seen as second-class citizens. 
not capable of any kind of human emotion and not capable of ever being God's people ever again. If there were drinking fountains in this day, there would have been a separate drinking fountain for Jews and for Samaritans. They said, no, we don't want anything to do with you. So when they were listening to the story, and Jesus got to the point of, and then a Samaritan came along, I'm sure that those who were listening to the story were thinking, okay, yeah, then a Samaritan came along and finished him off, that dirty Samaritan, horrible man that he was. But no, Jesus said he had compassion. He took pity on him. He showed him mercy. Wow, that would have shocked the listeners. When were you last stirred by compassion? When has God shown you a need and then stirred inside your heart just this deep empathy of saying, what would I want to have happen to me? If I were in their shoes, what would have happened? Maybe if people were more willing to feel what others are going through in this world today, they might be willing to move beyond their comfort zone into the next thing that we see from this parable. Compassion sees, compassion feels, and compassion does. Compassion does. Look at verse 34, an amazing verse. He went to him. And bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The Samaritan, like the, uh, unlike the priest and the Levite, does not pass by on the other side. He actually moves towards the wounded man. Church, we must move toward people in order to truly express compassion. Making the kind of connection that will allow compassion to shine forth. That doesn't just miraculously or mysteriously or accidentally happen. We must make a choice. We must make a decision. We must be willing to actually do something. And please don't forget that the Samaritan decided to do something to a man who, if the roles were were reversed, would never have done what he was about to do. It was radical. If you don't hear anything else from this sermon, listen to this next line. I firmly believe that it is when you and I as believers, when we do the thing least expected, that we are noticed the most. When we do the thing least expected, that we are actually noticed, that we stand out the most. You see, people expect you to hit them back when they hit you. They expect you to fight back when they fight against you. They expect you to riot when you think things are not fair. They think you are going to respond to their violence with violence. But let me ask you this. What would happen if you didn't? What would happen if, if somebody hits you and oh, I don't know, you turn the other cheek. Or if somebody forces you to go one mile and you decide that you would actually go the the extra mile for them, that you would actually return a sharp word with a gentle answer. What would happen if our actions actually reflect the heart of Jesus 
as, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, why don't you go ahead and give him something to eat? And if he's thirsty, why don't you go ahead and, I don't know, be the big boy and give him something to drink? There are, in this one verse, verse 34, there are six verbs. Six verbs. Do you know what's a verb? It's an action. It's a doing. It's, there's, in one verse, there are six things that this guy does. He went to him. He bandaged him. He poured oil and wine, like medicine, on him. He put him on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. Well, preacher, I, I, I don't know how to be compassionate to people that I don't know very well. That's kind of awkward. Preacher, I, I don't know how to show compassion for people that I don't like, who don't like me. I don't know how to show compassion to people that I totally disagree with. Folks, it's not rocket science. The Samaritan saw a need and in very practical ways did something that you could easily do. As the Apostle John writes these convicting words in 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity, same word there, has no compassion for him, how can the love of God be in him? Then he says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue but with action and in truth. Which brings me to the fourth thing that we see about compassion. Compassion sees Compassion feels, compassion does, and compassion costs. Absolutely costs. This is where rubber meets the road. Because if the man that had been wounded is now on the, on the Samaritan's donkey, what is the Samaritan doing? He's walking. A little inconvenient. If, where did the Samaritan take the man? To the inn which meant that he had to go out of his way. And even if the inn was on his way, he had to take time out of his busy schedule. What did the uh, Samaritan give to the innkeeper? Two silver coins. Ever have to cut into your own finances because somebody is in dire need? And then finally, if you look at verse 35, after he gave him the two silver coins and gives them to the innkeeper, he says to the innkeeper, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He's now, he's invested, isn't he? He's invested in this guy. He's going to come back the same way. And he's going to take time out of his schedule to drop by to see how he's doing. And then he's going to take care of any other extra expenses that might have occurred. This has been a very expensive trip for the Samaritan, wouldn't you say? It cost him something. Compassion will always cost. Boy, if I were to be honest with you this morning, and I'm not, I'm not proud about this at all. In fact, I'm very ashamed of the, the, the times, if I were to be honest with myself, the times that I have not been willing to be involved as I could have, it's because it was going to cost me. Too much. Either too much time, too much finances, too much effort, too much pride. Ouch. Isn't that the case with the struggles that we have in living the Spirit-filled and the Spirit-led life? 
God's spirit does lead us. And our spirit might be willing, but our flesh, oh, our flesh is so immersed in the weakness of selfishness and pride that we fall by the wayside just as spiritually lame as this man on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Folks, we got to be willing to pay what it costs, to pay the price of casting off our natural self-centeredness and pride in order to embrace the supernatural power of living the way that God wants us to live. So that's the story. It's great stuff. But what's the bottom line? Well, at the conclusion of the story, Jesus actually asked now the expert one more question. He said now, he says here in verse 36, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Duh. <laughs> now, and, and what's funny is this guy's answer. You know, he could have said the Samaritan, but this, this, these Jewish, this Jewish expert of the Jewish law cannot say that a Samaritan would have been so kind and so loving. So he says, the one who had mercy. <laughs> Can't even say Samaritan. All right, well, okay, that's, that's close enough. That's still the right answer, I guess. But then Jesus gives him a better answer. He says, okay. And I love it how it says in the King James Version, go thou and do likewise. Go thou and do likewise. That's the bottom line, church. It's interesting that Jesus has taken the initial question and has turned it around. Remember what the initial question was? Well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Well, Jesus now has shown him not who's his neighbor, but what kind of neighbor are you? (laughs) Oh, now that's where the rubber meets the road. Because what is going to determine what kind of neighbor are you? Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up. And as they do so, I want to talk about Mr. Rogers one more time because... At the, at the beginning of every one of his shows, Mr. Rogers would ask, won't you be my neighbor? He was inviting the audience to come into a trusting relationship with him. And as we, as children, would enter Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, we learned how to accept ourselves and how to see ourselves as special, just the way we are. But in doing so, we began to realize that we could also get better at accepting other people and feeling compassion towards other people who might not be like us either. Mr. Rogers was very astute at confronting the uh, issues of the day. And in the time of segregation, when black people would be found swimming in a white person's swimming pool, people would start to pour bleach in the pool and then run off the black people saying, you don't belong in this pool. That very day, or the the next day, Mr. Rogers would invite the the man who was playing the policeman, a black man, to sit there and put his feet in a wading pool right alongside Mr. Rogers, showing that it would be okay for black and white to be in the same pool together. At a time where people with disabilities were seen as an embarrassment and, and kind of put off to one side, put in homes to, to be not seen and not heard from, really, 
Mr. Rogers would routinely bring handicapped children onto his show, telling them how important they were, how special they were. Mr. Rogers liked me just the way I was. And the acceptance that he modeled for me, I believe, really has affected the way that I can now tell you I love you and I love serving as your pastor. I really do. But this isn't about Mr. Rogers, nor is it about me. Because Mr. Rogers, if you did not know this, gave his life to Jesus when he was a little boy. And he went on to go to seminary. He wanted to go into the ministry and was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. And he would have gone into church ministry, but he saw the medium of television and saw what kind of power that could have in the lives of young people to bring about positive things in their life. He decided that that was going to be his ministry. And so though he could never really say, Jesus loves you, every time he said, you're special, and I like you just the way you are, you know why he was saying that. It was because Jesus had loved Mr. Rogers for who he was and changed his life, changed his eternity. And Mr. Rogers turned that around to tell me that I was accepted so I could then turn around and tell other people that they are accepted as well. Mr. Rogers was one of those people who chose to live the kind of life that Jesus modeled and taught to his disciples. Jesus told us he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for so many. He washed the disciples' dirty, disgusting feet and then told them to follow that example in their practical love for each other. What must I do to walk in eternal life? Love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love that relationship that he came to give to you. But then don't just keep that to yourself. You must love your neighbor. Why? Because Jesus showed you how much he loved you when he went to the cross. And he said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Folks, you have been shown mercy. You have been given forgiveness. Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner, while you were still his enemy. So today, I would want to challenge you. Now go thou and do likewise. And won't you be a neighbor? <laughs> Let me pray for you right now. Father God, thank you so much. As we wrap this up, Lord, it's so good to be in your presence and with these people. And Lord, we, we have enjoyed the, the, the time of fellowship and, and of worship through song and through this story that is very familiar to many of us. But God, I thank you that in this story we see this model of shining forth your light, showing compassion to this world, even to people that we don't like, who do not like us, who have a different stance than us in so many parts of life, God, I would pray that we would know how to be your disciples in this dark world so that you might shine through us and call more and more people into your kingdom. God, we love you so much and we thank you for this time. As we leave here today, empower us to do your will. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.